Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. We are, of course, here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Today's show is all about rural America and why the Democrats consistently lose so badly in rural elections. My guest today on that subject is Anthony Flacaveno. He is the co-founder of a new group called the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. He's also a farmer and author based in rural Virginia, and he's run for office a few times in that state. Uh, So he'll be speaking all about the causes and consequences of the rural-urban divide and what exactly it is that progressives and leftists uh, need to do to start winning elections in these rural areas. So for my own part, I'll also be making a few comments about um, why, even though the left to date is doing relatively well in a few major cities, we actually really need to start winning constituencies outside of cities, uh, not just because, you know, it's morally and ethically right to do that, but also because there are really profound strategic reasons. So definitely stay tuned for all of that. Uh, But first, I will be talking to Jacobin editor Seth Ackerman about inflation, the Fed raising interest rates, and what this is all going to mean for the economy. So let's get to it. All right. So we are now joined by Seth Ackerman, Jacobin's executive editor. Seth, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jen, as always. So we're here to talk about inflation and the Fed. Uh, I should mention you have a series of pieces in Jacobin and also on your um, Substack newsletter that I think kind of go against the received wisdom on inflation. And one of your recent points was that um, nobody really ever stops to ask why inflation is bad. Uh, So I'll go ahead and take the bait. Why is inflation bad? And uh, maybe specifically, I feel like the underlying assumption is when you have inflation, prices go up and, you know, if people's wages um, are not also going up or if they don't rise as quickly, then obviously it costs more to buy goods and services. Um, and that seems bad. Uh, so what does that miss or what does that leave out? Yeah, there's I mean, there's a kind of a, a, an obvious basic logic that nobody likes higher prices. Higher prices aren't good for anybody who's paying the higher prices. Um, and when there's inflation, obviously, that means that there's higher prices. People notice that people see that and they feel it. Um, and so in that sense, inflation is not popular. But at the same time, the the, the other side of the, the coin, which is this is not a secret, but it's something that people often forget, is that for every buyer, there's a seller. For every seller, there's a buyer. So when you pay money higher, higher priced for goods and services, somebody is that, that's going to somebody's pocket. And um, and in the end, uh, inflation can't really um, sustain itself over time unless people's uh, incomes, their nominal incomes anyway, are rising sufficiently fast to allow them to, to buy all that stuff. The prices can only rise if people are, are actually able to buy the stuff. So in the end... Um, The last thing I would say is that inflation can never be um, a bad thing, can never be a net negative uh, economically. Um, But uh, in the but ultimately, it's a lot more complicated than just the issue of prices going up. Um, So I think probably the most basic question that that has to be asked whenever there's inflation is uh, the distinction between supply and demand. So, you know, the price of something can go up because people are more eager to buy it. And so they're willing to pay more money. Or the price can go up because people are more reluctant to sell it, and so they have to be induced to to uh, get a higher price for it. And so there can be, you know, demand-based inflation with too much demand. There can be a, a supply-based inflation based on uh, what they call a negative supply shock, where suddenly people are less able or willing to sell the things that you need to produce goods and services or the goods and services themselves. And um, a big part of the debate that was happening that's been happening since this surge of inflation began, you know, a little over a year ago among economists was this question of, is this about supply or demand? Is this about a, a demand shock or a supply shock? Now, I mean, keep in mind, keep in mind, there's always a political angle to these yeah. uh, these debates. So, um, you know, inflation has risen pretty much around the world, not necessarily as much as in the United States everywhere, 
But everywhere there has been an increase in inflation since COVID, since the recovery from COVID. Uh, but in the United States, there's been a political edge, an ideological edge to the debate, the, the economics debate over inflation, I think, because um, in large part because of the stimulus, because of Joe yeah. Biden's stimulus. So uh, the stimulus itself, you know, at the time was not enormously controversial, if you remember. I mean, it's not like the Republicans were making it into a big issue. Um, they themselves had passed stimulus bills under Trump. Trump had signed these bills that you know sent out free free money to to millions of people. It was not a major political issue. The Republicans didn't vote for for Biden's stimulus in in early 2021, but they didn't make a big political issue of it. But among economists, among the people who you know get into this kind of this kind of stuff, and that includes the people around the Fed and the and the kinds of debates that they take part in, um, there was an ideological edge. A lot of it was introduced by one person, which was Larry Summers, who mm-hmm. clearly um, you know. He 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 went on a kind of a crusade about it. Uh, he had been sort of ejected from Democratic Party politics um, after the the primaries when, you know, his name had come up as a possible advisor to Joe Biden and, and there were protests from progressives. And uh, he didn't end up he basically ended up saying, I'm, I'm not going to work in government anymore. And so his mission, I think, at that point became his mission in life became to you know denounce the the woke takeover of his corner of the Democratic Party, which is the economics side of things. So that's become his his thing. And so for, for more than a year, he, he, he was banging the drum about how he was basically injecting a political, an ideological angle to this debate that, that doesn't really exist in other countries that are also experiencing inflation. So for him, it was, this was because of too much stimulus, too much mm-hmm. demand. Um, and that's the cause of the inflation. And, and the, the Fed isn't helping because the Fed has gone woke. That's this is a this is what what Summers has been saying, and so the you know and and, and they so as a result the Fed has been behind the curve. They they mm-hmm. failed to tighten monetary policy enough in time to to um, nip the inflation in the bud. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the that's one side of the debate, which is uh, where you know people with Summers' point of view want to emphasize the inflation as being caused by too much demand because that's yeah. where the stimulus that's what the stimulus was too much mm-hmm. demand. Mm-hmm. Well, the other side of the issue is supply. So, I mean, there's there's a kind of um, it's very easy to to listen to to these debates, people like Larry Summers, and forget that we we have had we're having uh, a global pandemic um, that has made has been one of the most massive supply shocks yeah. uh, in peacetime in world history. Um, literally, you know, uh, half a billion people have been infected with the disease that made it hard for them or impossible for them to work. Mm-hmm. There were rolling shutdowns of uh, ports and factories and uh, every kind of productive facility all over the world. Um, and, you know, and, and there were there were many months where there was almost no economic activity going on at all. So uh, this was a huge supply shock. So that is something that if you had told, you know, an economist 10 years ago, you'd come back from the future and said, you know, there's going to be this 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 pandemic and it's going to cause all these shutdowns and millions of people are going to be infected. And uh, probably the economist, if he knows, knows what he's talking about, he or she, or she was talking about, they would say, uh, that sounds like it's going to be inflationary. Right. Um, so that would be to be that's to be expected that, mm-hmm. that there would be inflation. So the question is, uh, this makes a big difference about what you think about uh, the impact on working people, right. what you think about the, the correct policy response. Because if it's a if it's too much demand, then in some sense it, that's an easier problem. Then you right. can say, well, there's too much spending; people are spending too much money. You just need to implement policies that reduce the amount people are spending, and then that'll solve the problem. Mm-hmm. But if the problem is uh, a supply shock, if the problem is that these events have taken place that have made it more difficult for people to um, to 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 work, to mm-hmm. supply their labor, to sell the things that they own or the things that they can supply, uh, then there's not a very good solution to that other than the actual solution to, the, to that, which is, you know, getting past the pandemic and right. um, get, finding ways to get people back in the labor market or, or, or whatever. And that's that's a hard slog. That's something that the Federal Reserve only they only have the tools to to control demand. Right. They can they can deal with interest rates. They can make you know they can make it more costly to borrow and reduce spending that way. But they can't do anything about you know how many people get infected with COVID. Right. Uh, so that's that's where the crux of the problem lies. And from from the point of view, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll let you get yeah. to your next question. But that's that's the basic economics aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to kind of stay on this sort of supply side for a second because when you look at um, all of the national polling around, you know, what people are feeling or what they're thinking about inflation and who they think is responsible for it, people like basically overwhelmingly say 
in in so many words, the supply side, right? Like they talk about the supply chain breakdown. They talk about the pandemic. Um, they also increasingly talk about corporations, right? They they say, you know, like we think that a lot, I think like, it, uh, sorry, excuse me. According to one poll, like a, a super majority of people said something like, we think that corporations are like basically colluding to raise prices. Um, and I think that that, this kind of narrative that corporations have a heavy hand in inflation, I think, has sort of taken off in response to what you were talking about, the kind of Larry Summers, like uh, woke Fed sort of like this is this is a demand issue uh, narrative. Right. Like the th this idea that the corporations are actually doing something is something that, um, you know, people on the left and progressives are now trying to look at. And it seems like a lot of the public feels the same way. Um, so maybe as just like a broad question for you. How much does corporate greed explain sort of current price hikes? Well, first of all, I, I completely agree with, with the, the point that you made. It's a really good point, and I, I haven't seen it emphasized enough, which is that the public perceives they, – they're not plugged into these debates among economists. Mm -hmm. When they perceive inflation, which they do, obviously, they, they see prices going up. Um, the things that they can, that are visible to them, that are most visible to them are the supply issues. Mm -hmm. The demand issues about, you know, like the stimulus, you know, everyone got like a big check and people, you know, that, that's something that all else equal is going to be inflationary. But people don't think very much about that, if only because it, like I said, it hasn't been much of a political issue. Yeah. So in a sense, I mean, I think this is frustrating for people like Larry Summers is that when the public sees inflation, what they think of is they think of COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing, you know, we've had this giant disaster and that's why we're experiencing inflation, the supply chain issues. People know that the shelves are empty in some places or it's hard to get certain goods. That's unusual. And it's clear that there's some sort of a supply. So, yes, I agree with you that that's and that's that is how the public perceives things. And then and then on that point, there is this this critique on the left that says uh, that there is an issue of sort of basically kind of an antitrust issue or a monopoly yeah. issue um, for among corporations. You know, and Larry Summers and people like him have been very critical of this. They say that this is silly because. Uh, among other things, I mean, I think that the, the probably their best point is that uh, in terms of just, you know, even if you were to accept the idea that um, antitrust monopoly type issues are a, a major feeding into the inflation problem in a serious way from a policy perspective. You know, there's there's not really much you can do within the space of time necessary uh, for in using traditional antitrust, you know, blocking mergers or breaking up companies that's going right. to actually um, solve the problem. Then there's the question of price controls, which opens up another a whole other uh, can of worms, because there was a, a big debate, a rather acrimonious debate about that uh, recently on Twitter. We can talk about that, too. Um, to, to answer your question about corporations, I think that there is um, I mean, just in terms of like describing the source of the problem, I do think that there's probably some. Uh, aspect of that, but there's almost certainly some aspect of that that that, mm -hmm. that is the case. I saw, for example, um, I saw uh, that um, there was an article in the Financial Times about the automakers, and the automakers, uh, you know, have had this very difficult problem with with that's very much a supply issue. Mm -hmm. but they can't get computer chips, they can't get uh, semiconductors, yeah. and this yeah. has been blocking their production of cars. And um, there was a, basically a both both of the two main competitors in one of the segments of the car industry. I forget what it was, Volkswagen and something else. Um, there was talk from some of their executives anonymously that you know, well, we're going to we're going to raise prices. You know, for a long time we've been uh, hesitant to raise prices because it would alienate consumers. Um, but now we feel like there's a kind of a taboo that's broken or something like that. Uh, you know, th there's uh, people. People accept it now because there's a feeling like we're not in normal times. And so, you know, they're, they're able to do this. And I think that that is uh, a real phenomenon. And it's something that you can explain in economics terms, because a lot of the pricing in these big, you know, oligopoly markets is really indeterminate. It just depends on what the two sides, what the two companies can, can sort of coordinate tacitly coordinate on. So there is definitely uh, some element of price gouging here. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's the probably the, the deeper problem when it comes to sort of the corporate greed aspect of things, which is that in order to solve these supply problems, ultimately you need investment. You need big investments in big physical things, you know, um, ports and uh, and shipping, you know, uh, shipping con uh, container ships that, mm -hmm. you know, transocean container ships and things that cost a lot of money that are risky. They take a long time to build. They last a long time. If um, th their profitability depends on long-term factors that are un unpredictable. So you don't know for sure if they're going to be the risky. So you don't know if they're going to be profitable. How do you know there's not going to be another recession right after you build a big container ship? And, and so um, 
and there we live in in you know we've lived in this era this neoliberal era when uh, investment in big physical things has been there's been a whole series of sort of mechanisms that corporations and, and financial markets have put in place to limit those investments to make it harder to make uh, corporations more uh, cautious about making those investments mm-hmm. and uh, that i think is is a big issue it's going to be a big yeah. issue in the long term uh, so so that is a sort of an aspect of like the kind of neoliberal uh, modus operandi of the corporate sector now that's definitely feeding into inflation but on the on the on the basic question of what to do now, I I would have to agree, you know, with the Larry Summers of the world in that it's not going to be there's no sort of immediate solution. Yeah. Bar, barring price controls, which is something that we can we can you know talk about, but um, but in terms of like the the antitrust stuff, breaking up corporations, making them more you know behave more competitively, that's not really a solution in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so let's talk about what the Fed is doing, um, because obviously they just had their March meeting. Uh, they've decided to raise interest rates. And I believe Jerome Powell like made some comment to the effect that he felt like wages were growing too quickly. Uh, so the Fed has now raised interest rates a quarter point. What is this going to mean for the economy and like basically for the average American worker? The uh, the pace of interest rate uh, increases is certainly a lot faster than what people were expecting just mm-hmm. a, a few months ago, but that's to be expected since inflation has been accelerating more. Um, on the other hand, it's not the kind of uh, pace of interest rate hikes that on its own is is what you would expect to provoke a recession. I mean, I say that I say that. Uh, in other words, they're being somewhat cautious, mm-hmm. but at the same time, because of the sort of unpredictability of financial markets and how financial markets are going to react to that and react to the events in the world, um, it certainly makes it more fragile. So there's there's more of a possibility that this is going to puncture the expansion and and cause a recession. I don't think that they want to do that. There are certainly times in the past when the Fed, many times in the past, when the Fed has deliberately provoked a recession, more or less, uh, in order to deal with inflation. I don't think they want to do that in this case. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the, the wage issue. So, uh, if, you know, it, up until about six months ago, about, you know, the, the late summer or fall, mm-hmm. um, I would have said that inflation really doesn't have anything to do with wages, uh, because wages were not growing especially fast relative to productivity. And most of the inflation was caused, was being caused by these supply chain issues. And it was, inflation was concentrated within relatively narrow sectors of the economy. Right. Um, right around the late summer, early fall, uh, there was a, a real breakout in wages. So there was a mm-hmm. sudden, the labor market had sort of got, got to a tipping point where employers felt like they really were forced to bid up wages in in broad sectors of the labor market in order to find uh, workers willing to, to work for them. And the, the context for this is that um, this is hard for people to wrap their minds around because people think of the labor market right now as being very hot. It's like yeah. a, a tight labor market. It's good for workers. It's a lot of leverage. Workers have a lot of bargaining power. And there's there's that's certainly true as far as it goes. At the same time, though, the number of people with jobs today is actually lower than it was three years ago. Mm-hmm. So we, there's actually less employment now, but it's also a tighter labor market. And the reason for that, the, the explanation for that is that there are millions of people who were in the labor market, who you know either had a job or were looking for a job three, four years ago, who are not in the labor market anymore. And that is the result of, of COVID. And then the question is, are they going to come back into the labor market? Um, which is, that's, that's a whole issue that, that uh, is a big part of the, the deliberations that the Fed is, is, is making, is the calculations that they're making. Um, but the, 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 the fact, the, the sort of on the ground fact is that there is, in fact, a lot of uh, upward wage pressure. Wages are mm-hmm. rising faster than productivity. And that at this point is one of the main contributors to the inflation, to the inflationary surge right now. Um, it's not the only one and it's not the maybe even still not the majority of the, the contribution, but it's there. It's a real pressure. And sure. so that is something that that I think that is the nub of the issue that I think the left uh, it gives the left something to think about mm. um, because um, because there you really do have a situation where workers are. Uh, bec- are, have a lot more leverage now than they did in uh, it, it, that they do in most times in the labor market, but that is contributing significantly to inflation. And then the question is, what do you what do you do about it? What do you think about it? There, there's some people on the left who say, you know, inflation is bad. 
uh, it's never good for workers um, because, you know, prices go up and there's all kinds of craziness that happens with speculation and the housing market becomes more difficult. And, um, and my view is, is, is that uh, on the one hand, you have to be honest and, and recognize that, uh, that the tight labor market and the strong position workers are in are indeed contributing to inflation now. And that's like a, a central issue in the inflation debate. On the other hand, I don't think that there is any argument from a left point of view uh, for wanting anything but for this to continue. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, right. because you, you've been seeing, you know, and you can see the, the reporting by our excellent uh, labor reporter, uh, uh, Alex Press and mm-hmm. Jacobin, um, you know, story after story, giving a picture of workers really gaining in self-confidence and uh, willingness and ability to organize mm-hmm. um, that we haven't seen for a while. It's not it's not a strike wave. It's not we haven't seen, you know, we haven't had like a complete transformation of, right. of working class consciousness, but there's something happening. Uh, and that's because or in, in part because we're living in times where the labor market has propitious, auspicious, you know, material circumstances for that kind of for that kind of shift. And I, I think that it can only help. Uh, for that to to go on, I don't see a lot of danger and uh, from from inflation in itself. Uh, you know, you have to recognize that inflation is never enjoyable, um, and that and that tight labor markets are contributing to it now. But in the end, I think that the benefits that come from the the, the strength that that worker, working people are getting from their position in the labor market uh, outweighs whatever the costs or the nuisances of inflation. That's my take. Yeah. Um, so so let's actually then end on this note of like what the left response could or should be to inflation. Right. Because you, you had sort of hinted a little bit a while ago about price controls, uh, which, again, is a very sort of thorny uh, and weird subject. Maybe just end by talking a little bit about what that would entail and like whether that's bad or good. Um, <clears throat> price controls are, of course, you know, an age old uh, response to inflation going all the way back to long before there was, you know, economics uh, as any kind of a social science. Um, and uh, there, there is the good and the bad of them. You know, there, there, there have been price controls that have been smarter and, and less smart. Um, the, I mean, in terms of what we think of as, you know, the traditional heavy handed, you know, government setting a price for this and that, that kind of price control, um, the most comprehensive recent example of that was, was World War II. Uh, but there was also as recently as the 70s, the Nixon administration, in a kind of a tricky, devious way, they implemented wage and price controls to deal with inflation. Price controls can can work in certain circumstances. Some kinds of inflation can be broken. There's a kind of a, a self-propelling dynamic that inflation takes on in situations like in the 70s, where you have a wage price spiral. I said before that wage growth is contributing to inflation right now, but we don't have a wage price spiral. And that's the, the difference between those two, you know, maybe something for another time. Um, but in those, in those situations, like in the 70s uh, and in, during wars, when that kind of a dynamic happens, price controls can be like a circuit breaker. So you have a wage price spiral, but you put like a spoke in the wheel of that, of that, you know, that process uh, by, by, by setting, you know, by make, making it impossible for companies to raise prices except for uh, according to a certain schedule. And that can be effective. In World War II, John Kenneth Galbraith was a famous uh, um, gadfly economist in the post-war era. But during World War II, he was the head of the price control office, the Office of Price Administration. Um, he was, you know, a, a new dealer. And, um, and he wrote a book after the war called The Theory of Price Controls. And, and he showed that price controls in World War II were very effective. Nobody wants to go back to the conditions of World War II, the rationing and all, all the rest of it. But um, but price controls can work in that sense. I I think that there are probably in this situation certain very selective kinds of price controls that would make sense um, that have to do with you know preventing price gouging by corporations in very yeah. non-competitive sectors where there's no possibility of real competition. But I don't think that even if that happens, I think that could be a net positive. I think it could prevent you know bad actors from doing bad things. But I don't think it's going to really uh, solve the inflation problem. Uh, it doesn't doesn't make it not worth doing, but it's right. it's not going to solve the inflation problem. All right. Well, on that note, Seth Ackerman, again, is Jacobin's executive editor. And Seth, what is the name of your newsletter? Informer. Informer. All right. Check it out on Substack. Uh, Seth, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jen, as always. All right. So I will get to my segment in just a moment. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. 
Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in March, you'll get these books. Feminism or Death, How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Deobon, a new edition of a classic work of French feminist theory. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Haider, a challenge to the way we understand the politics of race and the history of anti-racist struggle. The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies by Mark Neocleus, an intellectual history that exposes the politics underpinning the way immunity is imagined. And The Benjamin Files by Frederick Jameson, the paperback edition of this comprehensive exploration of all of Benjamin's major works. Become a member today at versobooks.com. In August of last year, the Census Bureau released their decennial population data and states kicked off redistricting. So far, 40 states have completed drawing up their congressional districts, and the rest are scrambling to finish in time for the midterm elections. Going into this redistricting process, things didn't look rosy for Democrats or progressives. Republicans now control a majority of state legislatures, which oversee redistricting in most states. According to 538, Republicans control the legislatures of 20 states for a total of 188 House districts, whereas by comparison, Democrats have control of states that contain only 73 districts at most. And of course, Republicans are famous for gerrymandering districts in ways that carve up certain areas, most notably those containing non-white people and other perceived Democratic voters, and lumping them in with others so that the new districts conveniently end up with a reduction in Democratic voters. As this graphic shows, Dems can have more votes and still end up with less seats. As the New York Times lamented after the 2020 census data was published, Republican mapmakers will seek to dilute the emerging Democratic strength in the nation's suburbs by packing some of those voters into urban districts while joining others to conservative rural districts. Last month, CNN echoed this fear, but additionally noted that Democrats will also gerrymander to their advantage whenever they can. Our elected representatives have a lot more incentives to work together if they were more competitive and really representative congressional districts. But that's not happening by design. Let's dig into the data. So there are 31 states where maps have been finished and not dismissed by the courts, but just 22 congressional districts that are considered competitive, according to the Brennan Center. Now, 10 years ago, there were double that number, 44 at this point in the cycle. 1992, there were 108 competitive districts. See a pattern? Now take a closer look at Texas, where State House Republicans drew lines to go from 12 competitive districts to just one. Yeah, they really don't want to deal with close elections. And Democrats have been getting into the action as well. Take New York, where they likely reduced the number of Republican seats from eight to four. Now, Republicans rightly point out that this is unfair. Democrats would control as many as 85% of the congressional seats, but don't comprise 85% of registered voters. Now, Republicans are challenging this in court, but their argument would be a lot more convincing if the GOP hadn't consistently opposed redistricting reform at the federal level. But while redistricting gets a lot of attention because it's so often overtly a partisan grab for power, gerrymandering is actually only a very small part of what's stopping Democrats and progressives from gaining more power at the national and even state level. The problem isn't limited to a handful of bad actors or even a reactionary political party like the GOP that's deliberately trying to undermine democracy. The larger problem is that the combination of A, the geographical concentration of Democratic voters in cities, and B, the very nature of winner-take-all elections, structurally prevents Democrats from winning seats proportional to their share of the vote. Here's why. So take a look at this map. Most people who follow politics already know that while Democrats dominate elections in cities, Republicans consistently trounce them in rural areas. The reason this is such a problem, as political scientist Jonathan Rodden points out in his book Why Cities Lose, is that our current electoral system, which is made up of small districts that elect only one representative using a winner-take-all system, consistently disadvantages voters in cities. As Rodden writes, in many U.S. states, Democrats are now concentrated in cities in such a way that even when districts are drawn without regard for partisanship, their seat share will fall well short of their vote share. Because of where Democrats live, the very existence of winner-take-all geographic districts has facilitated the systemic underrepresentation of Democrats. In other words, because they're so heavily concentrated geographically, it's extremely difficult for Democrats to translate raw votes into seats 
both in Congress and in state legislatures. And while Republican gerrymandering certainly exacerbates the problem, the consistent underrepresentation of Democrats will never fully vanish as long as we keep our current electoral system of people voting in small districts that elect only one winner-take-all representative. So what does this all mean for a left that's trying to find some way of achieving reforms like Medicare for All on a national level? To put it bluntly, it means we can't just stick to racking up wins in cities. First, it is important to note that the American left, small as it is at the moment, is arguably in better shape now than it was a decade ago. Particularly over the last five years, the ranks of the Democratic Socialists of America have grown to nearly 95,000 members with at least one chapter in every state. Dozens of self-identified Democratic Socialists have been elected to city councils and state legislatures across America, and we now even have a few Socialists in Congress. As Jacobin contributor Jared Abbott recently put it, this is no minor achievement given many previous decades in the political wilderness. However, geography is still a serious hurdle. Most of the left's wins to date have been concentrated in urban centers, much like the base of the Democratic Party itself. Progressive Congress members like AOC and socialist state legislators overwhelmingly represent solidly Democratic districts in major cities, which means that we on the left face the exact same structural constraints as our moderate Democrat counterparts in national and state elections. To quote Jared again, it is becoming increasingly clear that the tried and true method of picking off centrist Democrats in deep blue districts is reaching its strategic limit. In other words, it's essential for the left to start building a larger and more geographically diverse working-class constituency, which means contesting elections in rural areas and small towns in order to gain some leverage nationally. There's also obviously a moral and ethical component. Simply put, rural America has been devastated by neoliberalism. This shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Capitalists have found it more profitable to locate the hubs of their businesses in cities. As Professor Mark Edelman wrote in Jacobin in 2020, since the turn to more cutthroat free market policies in the 1980s, American capitalism has systematically underdeveloped rural and small town regions of the United States. The 2008 crash poured gasoline on the fire. Mutual savings banks and credit unions, cooperatives, mom and pop businesses, local industries and newspapers, health and elder care facilities, schools and libraries have all fallen victim to relentless austerity policies or private equity raiders. So this is to say that over the past several decades, rural areas have suffered from chronic underinvestment, crumbling physical infrastructure and the swift erosion of social institutions. Since 2005, more than 180 rural hospitals have closed, and at least 21 have shut down since the start of the pandemic. We also know well at this point that opioid use and incarceration have skyrocketed in rural America, as have so-called deaths of despair or suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol-related liver disease. Now, winning rural voters is, of course, much easier said than done, and to call the situation before us an uphill battle is probably an understatement. In 2016, for instance, a majority of rural voters held a negative view of all of the candidates running in the Democratic presidential primary, including Bernie Sanders, though it probably has to be said that rural voters did rate Sanders least negatively out of all the Democratic candidates. But the point is that even if we're starting from square one, under our current political system, there are few alternatives to winning more rural voters. Moreover, if the left cannot break out of the cities, and particularly the more affluent precincts within those cities, our entire political project will flounder within America's rigid electoral system, and the few progressives that are elected will find it increasingly difficult to avoid working with corporate Democrats. In other words, we can't settle for our current clustering within urban centers, no matter how well we're doing there and no matter how many centrist Democrats we manage to defeat. The viability of our entire project depends on successfully organizing working people outside of cities. All right. And on the subject of the urgency of needing to organize working class voters in rural areas and how exactly the progressives and the left can do that, let's get to our next guest. So we are now joined by Anthony Flacaveno. He is the co-founder of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. He's also a farmer and author based in Virginia and a two-time Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's 9th District. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thrilled to be with you, Jen. Thanks. 
So as I had just mentioned, uh, you are the co-founder of a relatively new group called the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. Um, and I, I want to talk about the rural urban divide, right? Because that can mean a couple different things. But I think what comes to mind for me immediately is that it's very well known that Democrats currently dominate in cities. Uh, cities are overwhelmingly Democrat. They're sort of starting to take over suburbs but they struggle in rural areas. So there's kind of a political component. And then, of course, when we talk about the rural-urban divide, um, a lot of kind of, I think, cultural issues come to mind as well. So you obviously have been writing and thinking about this subject for a long time. As I mentioned, you yourself are a rural resident. So what do you see? At, how do you define the rural-urban divide to begin with? And what do you see as kind of the main sources driving this divide? Sure. And it's it's a, a fairly extensive list of things driving the divide, but we've, uh, myself and my colleagues at Ruby have kind of narrowed it down to the top half a dozen or so underlying causes. But we see the divide, first of all, more fundamentally as an economic divide. Yes. Uh, and, and cultural, I'd say, is pretty foundational as well. The political divide, in my thinking, has mostly followed from the economic and cultural divide. So... When when we do our trainings and write and speak about the rural-urban divide, we always start with an economy that has failed at least 80% of Americans. We yes. talk a lot about the top 1%, but actually the top 20% have done pretty well through most things. But the bottom 80%, the mass of us, have not done so well for a lot of reasons, from the complete uh, abrogation of our responsibility around antitrust and how uh, corporate monopolization has taken over almost every economic sector, uh, to terrible farm policy, to uh, investor-driven trade policy, and on and on. Now, that's failed most working Americans, most Americans across the board, but it is particularly catastrophic for the past four decades or so in rural areas, because rural areas have tended to be much less diverse economically, mm -hmm. whether they're a kind of a manufacturing sort of so-called Rust Belt town, whether they're more agricultural, whether they're like Appalachia, where maybe they had coal, timber, and tobacco. We've, we've been much more mm -hmm. concentrated in the economic uh, basis. And as a result, these bad economic policies that have hurt everybody have devastated rural communities. To us, that's the starting point. Yes. We know there's lots of other factors, but when the the economy has essentially abandoned you or just extracted from you for generations, you're pretty predisposed to get pissed off. And unfortunately, the, on the political side, the the right has been way more effective, not in solving the problems of rural right. communities, but in speaking to the anger and the frustration. Whereas on our side, sort of somewhere on the spectrum of Dems, liberals, progressives, we've either pretended it isn't a problem, blamed the people who are angry because of their own, uh, you know, parochialism, racism, whatever, um, or, or simply, here's the here's the the most recent version. Simply decided that all we have to do is use better messaging to convince these people that we're actually on their side. Right. And so, all those things have kind of added up. Now, with the economic, um, the foundation of a, an economy that has extracted from and and degraded so many rural communities and small towns, then you have the cultural differences that are real. Mm -hmm. um, also then become not just differences, but become flashpoints and become yes. further uh, fuel for the, the fire of the divide. I'll, I'll give you one example is around environmental policy. Now, I'm an organic farmer. Yes. I've been advocating for good environmental things for most of my life um, and in the last 10 years or so, particularly around climate change. But the message from our side about the environment to to rural places. And, and let's remember that it's the rural places that are most intimately connected to the environment, right? Whether you're fishermen, farmers, uh, foresters and loggers, even the drillers and the miners, mm -hmm. they depend on the environment in a much more immediate and direct way than most urban and suburban people do. We do in rural areas. Yes. And yet most rural people hate environmentalists. So 
why, why is that? How could that be? It's not because they actually hate the environment or that they don't believe in uh, conservation and stewardship of the resources. It's that they feel that all they've heard in relation to the environment is that they are the problem. Mm-hmm. And that what we have to do is shut down their mines, shut down their big ag farms, shut down their logging operations, and then we'll take care of the environment. Meanwhile, while we're getting that message, we know that all the people giving us that message still eat, still turn their lights on, still use wood and fiber and materials in their lives. And so it creates this deep resentment over people not really understanding just how challenging it is to utilize the environment to the benefit of people, but not to the de- de- detriment of the ecosystem. That, that's mm-hmm. no that's no easy proposition. Right. And yet rural people, by and large, feel they've been put in a place, kind of a no-win. So right. that's, that's one example about how the failure of the economy has then exacerbated the sort of perspective and cultural differences. Yeah. I, I want to follow that up with a kind of um, similar question, because I think that's something that we hear quite a lot is that, you know, there's there's a sort of condescending, condescending stereotype, right? That people in rural areas, especially rural uh, poor people, quote, vote against their interests, right? When they're casting ballots overwhelmingly for Republicans and you're rolling your eyes already. So, uh, so I was going to ask, how do you respond to this other than with just the eye roll? Right, right, right. <laughs> So I I don't know who it was that said this, but I saw a quote or maybe I heard somebody on a call say it's less about people voting against their own interests than people looking for someone, some party who Mm -hmm. has their interests Mm -hmm. at heart. Yes. That's that's the big difference. So, you know, it's easy for for not just city folk, but but liberals and progressives more generally to look and say that that people are voting working class generally are voting against their own interests rural people voting against their own interests but but the truth is neither political party in our two party system has paid much attention to these interests at all yes. now i'm not somebody who believes that there's no difference between the dems and the republicans especially the modern republican party which is off the rails but it is true that neither party has consistently addressed the needs, the issues, or the opportunities there. So, right. so I, I think the voting against their own interests, which I, man, I heard that hundreds <laughs> of times during my campaign. Yep. Yeah, yeah. From well-meaning folks of who course, really, yep. you know, didn't wanted uh, wanted to be allies with mm-hmm. the people that they were not. But it really is incredibly condescending. Uh, Erica Edelson points out in her book. Um, beyond contempt, she talks about how the uh, the effects of globalization as another example of this. For the most part, the professional class and up have benefited from globalization, right? Pretty cheap and reliable source of labor, whether it's nannies or gardeners or, you know, workers in their factory, um, a kind of a cosmopolitanism in terms of food and the exchange of, I mean, all that cool stuff that's, you know, that's delightful, but with almost none of the downside, whereas people in small towns and rural areas by and large don't see those benefits mm-hmm. of globalization, but they sure have seen some downsides from it for, for now, you know, going on 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, Again, so when we say, why do they vote against their own interests? Well, sometimes our policies hurt their interests. Yes. I, I, I'm I, now, you know, okay, so I, of course, agree that, you know, it feels very much like neither political party is responding to the needs of working people, um, including, of course, rural working people. Um, but, you know, people often point out that rural voters in some ways are technically overrepresented in our political institutions like the Senate and the Electoral College. And, you know, there's always a lot of chatter that, you know, the primaries begin with Iowa and New Hampshire. And that's not fair because those states are very rural and they're white. And so they're like not representative of America. And uh, be- and and we do know that, you know, many of our institutions in the U.S. are not as democratic as we would like them to be. Uh, does this actually translate to more rural friendly policies at the national level? Because just listening to you, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, isn't that the kind of um, most uh, most horrifying of <laughs> uh, of ironies in that yes. it is without question true that rural places have 
far more representation than they have people in the Senate, in the Electoral College, et cetera. No, there's no doubt about that. It has absolutely not translated into their interests being dominant, even getting sort of a, a proportional share of time yeah. and energy. What it has translated into because of the liberal democratic response to that has has been a kind of a one-party rule that has developed in rural yeah. areas on the Republican side. And, you know, I have Republican friends in the Virginia state legislature, and every once in a while, there's actually a reasonably good, meaningful piece of legislation, whether it's around rural schools or some some farm policy that they want to pursue. So it's not uniformly negative, but generally speaking, that one-party rule um with an exaggerated political representation of rural communities has not helped rural communities. It has not made their issues. It It's made their rage a huge political factor, yes. but not their actual livelihoods. Yes. So one of the projects that Ruby is working on that I'm particularly interested in, and I know it's still kind of in the ongoing and development phase, is you guys are trying to look at progressive and sort of, you know, as you were saying, kind of like from like center dem all the way to like, you know, left progressive candidates who run for office in rural areas and uh, perform well, even if they don't win, they kind of perform better than you would expect the traditional Democrat to perform. And I just want to give a quick spoiler that you yourself are one of those candidates. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, you ran for public office twice in the state of Virginia on a pro-labor platform. I believe you were endorsed by the Mine Workers Union. Yeah. And um, even though you did not win against your Republican opponent, you did very well in coal country, which it seems like I think for a lot of people who are Democrats would be like a little bit mind blowing, right? Especially since you've already outed yourself as an environmentalist medalist. So um, so I want to ask you about this project. Uh, again, as I said, I know that it's kind of in the early stages of development and you don't have a full report yet. But what can you share with us right now about what you found through interviewing successful sort of progressive candidates who have run in rural areas? Like, what are they doing that seems to work? And can progressives win in Trump country? Yeah. So I think the short answer about can progressives win in Trump country is, or, or the short-term answer is generally not yeah, in okay. the short, <laughs> generally not in the short term. I, one of the candidate interviews I did, one of our questions towards the end, and I won't say who it was, is um, what would a Democrat have to do to win in your district? And he said, not be a Democrat. Uh -huh. So, I mean, I think there's truth to that. But but we're looking at this, this candidate assessment, we call it, the best practices that we're working on, as tools to slowly but surely make progressives more competitive in rural communities. We don't expect that the findings, which we hope to release midsummer, mm -hmm. um, will suddenly flip the switch and have all of these progressive victories. But now let me say, too, that there are exceptions to this. There are progressive people in either completely progressive or very progressive on sort of economic issues mm -hmm. who have done well in rural areas and won. But for the most part, it's it's a longer term proposal to turn things around, right? So we were I was talking with Cody Lonning, who's the Ruby uh, person that has spearheaded this. And again, just to be clear, what, what we did was Cody looked at um, races in 2016 18 and 20, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, state Senate, yes. and gubernatorial, and looked at all of them. And um, anybody who ran in a, in a decidedly rural district, I mean, some districts are totally some, but a decidedly rural district from the progressive or Dem side of things, and who did better than the partisan lean by at least seven to 10 points, mm -hmm. that, that is the pool of people we are now interviewing. And we've yes. interviewed coming up on 40. Okay. Um, I, I checked with Cody and we've actually interviewed people who ran in 22 different states. So, so we've got the, the Southeast and Appalachia, the Northeast, mm -hmm. the Midwest, the Rust Belt, and uh, Western states like Oregon, Washington, Utah, all, all covered. Idaho. So, Idaho. Or maybe that's absolutely. not in your study, but I'm from no, Idaho, no, so I had no, to. No, no, <laughs> it is. Idaho, okay, we definitely right. <laughs> interviewed in Idaho, Iowa, the Dakotas, the whole bit. Yeah. So again, it's too early to say for sure, but the teaser, <laughs> the teaser results are first of all that it's critical to get the right candidate. Yes. Right? 
Okay. Now that can mean a lot of different things. Um, but one thing it means is somebody with really strong local roots. Yes. Preferably born and raised there. But if not, at least somebody who's, who for whatever time they've been there have been deeply engaged locally. Mm-hmm. They haven't just been living there. Right. They've been part of the community, part of, of working with the community to solve problems and do stuff. So that's one thing that's uh, really, really clear. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, I'm sorry, really quick, just for clarification, does that mean they have to be like an activist or is just like a small business owner from kind of the area good enough? Yeah. Oh, in fact, maybe in some ways preferable because, right, sure. it, yes. it, you know, it, again, it's going to vary on the community and the person and how they how they do their activism. But I would say the kind of more old fashioned ways of engaging the community on mm-hmm. the school board, uh, active in, in, um, local civic organizations, stuff like that. A business yeah. person. Yeah. 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 Right. Farmer, farmer. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so any and all of that stuff. So, so getting a person who's really locally rooted and has creds in the community across the aisle is, is one thing. A second is that they've got to be, First and foremost, good listeners. Yes. Uh, I remember a Wendell Berry quote. Wendell Berry is a farmer in Kentucky who's one of my uh, mentors and gurus. And he said of basically, not not specifically politicians, but of, of kind of development people coming to rural communities to try to save them. He said, we come with vision, but without sight. Mm-hmm. So these candidates who do well have a lot of sight. They see what's going on, good and bad, rather than just having their own vision for change, right? So that's that's another really important uh, contribution. And then in terms of the campaigns, what we're seeing, not just the candidate, but the campaigns, again, that, that it's a lot of listening yeah. uh, at doors, in town hall meetings, uh, being having an open... Oh, you know, sort of an open um, phone or otherwise for people to call. When you look at somebody like Chloe Maxman, who who won in a rural district in Maine for the state house and then won for the state senate, Chloe and her campaign were just laser focused on on listening to people um, yeah. throughout the campaign. So that's that's a clear thing. And another characteristic that's emerging, so so there's this listening respect element. Another is a willingness to be honest about our own party. Now, there's there's a a handful of independents tied up in this matrix, but the vast majority are Dems. And not everybody fits in this category, but the majority of them say they either minimize (laughs) their (laughs) Dem with a big D or are willing to candidly say, look, we've screwed up. Both yeah. parties, both parties have neglected your needs and your interests. I said that on my campaign pretty yeah. regularly, much to the consternation of some Dems. But um, but it's it's the honest truth. And if we're not willing to own up to that, we're not going to open doors to conversations about a better approach. So those are those are some of the characteristics of both the candidates and the campaigns that we're mm-hmm. beginning to see so far. Mm-hmm. And for your own two campaigns, um, re- was your approach sort of, I know that you led with a very pr- sort of pro-labor uh, kind of, like that was that was your uh, kind of main, the main thrust of your campaign, right? And as I mentioned, you you got a coveted United Mine Workers endorsement. Uh, how, how did that go over? And did you find that you were sort of, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, what issues did you lead with and, and, and like how successful was that? Well, I mean, let's be honest. I got my ass kicked. So, <laughs> so I was successful in the sense that I did better than the Democratic Senate candidate right. who was running at the time. who was well-known and well-liked. I beat the partisan lean by several points, mm-hmm. but I still lost by a lot. So, sure. I mean, you just got, we got to be honest about that. Yeah, but, yeah. but what we did find consistently and what I, I keep hearing four years later, I have mm-hmm. people that do not, I do not know, mostly working folks yes. who will come up to me. And I had a guy working on my bush hog. He was a welder. And mm-hmm. he says, are you, I said, yep, that's me. <laughs> right. And he said, well, I don't understand why you didn't win. You're the kind of working guy, you know, so clearly we made some inroads. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was 20 years younger, I, I, I might give it another shot. But I think that the, the fundamental message that I did was to contrast the elites who mm-hmm. run the show mm-hmm. um, with 
the rest of us. That yes. was it. I, mm -hmm. I, my opening line on my campaign, sort of my main campaign speech was the rich and the powerful have plenty of friends in Washington already. They don't need another friend. I don't like them. I'm for the working man and woman. And that's right. what you'll get with me. So, and that's pretty much what we did. We focused on local issues and we tried to, uh, we tried to focus on them not only in the, the rhetoric of the campaign and the little blog pieces and newsletter stuff we mm -hmm. did. We focused on them in the hundred town hall meetings, but we also tried to focus on them in the real world. So mm -hmm. during my campaign, a major employer in Bristol, which is a town right on the southern edge of the district, closed up shop. And mm -hmm. like so many big employers with almost no notice for the mm -hmm. employees, mm -hmm. the Republican congressman would not go down to meet with them. Eventually, mm -hmm. Long time later, he had a meeting with them. But I went and met with them at their request right away. And we talked through what the issues were. And, and it led to me bringing in a, a friend who was a fantastic attorney who filed a class action lawsuit on their behalf because the company had clearly violated federal law around giving employees sufficient notice. Yeah. And it took three and a half years, but they won the lawsuit. Yeah. So, you know, we tried to put our money where our mouth was, which is which is another characteristic we're seeing in a few of the campaigns that people use the resources of the campaign, mm -hmm. the, the, the the candidate or staff and volunteers or even sometimes financial resources to actually try to make a difference in the community mm -hmm. while they're going. And we tried to yeah. do that whenever we could. Similarly, around Black Lung, mm -hmm. we you know, Black Lung is uh, has re-erupted in central Appalachia as as a horrific killer of mm -hmm. very young yeah. miners. And mm -hmm. so we we met many times with um with local miners and black lung leaders and and worked with them and continue to work with them to try to figure out how to improve federal policy uh, mm -hmm. which is really bad around yeah. black lung. So that yeah. was a lot of it. It was partly the message Mm -hmm, of a focus right. on bread and butter economic issues, livelihood right. issues, mm -hmm. but it was also trying to actually do stuff in the course right. of the campaign. Right, right. Yeah, I, I want to uh, just focus on the messaging part for a little bit, because something that you had mentioned kind of at the top of the interview was that you feel that sometimes Democrats are a little too focused on messaging or get too preoccupied with it. And I think I agree with you broadly. Um, but as your campaign shows, I think that certain tweaks in messaging, such as you were saying, leading with the bread and butter issues and kind of framing the race as like the elite against the rest of us or vice versa, like that seemed to be pretty effective, all things considered. So um Maybe as kind of a broad question, like, how do you think we can use messaging to sort of move past what we might call culture wars? And then a follow up to that is, do you think that the Democrats in general have learned anything from 2016? <laughs> let me let me start with the second part. of OK, your question. OK. And and I might forget the first part. So be prepared to remind me. OK, but I would say there has been some movement. I, mm -hmm. I spoke to the rural caucus of the DNC last week in Washington, and I think the movement has been from kind of denying there's a problem or saying, yeah, there's a problem, but those people, they're hopeless, to where we seem to be now, where is a lot, a lot of Dems from local committees on up to the DNC are saying, um, we really do have a problem. We really can't win elections um, unless we have a broader coalition that includes working class people of all colors and includes rural. that That's yeah. the progress. Here's where they're stuck. Yeah. They And I heard this practically verbatim at the DNC from multiple people who spoke. And I've and I hear it in the rural urban divide trainings that we do as part of Ruby pretty regularly. And it's this. We just need better messages so those <laughs> folks will understand that we're on their side. Right. That we're the party that cares about them. Right. And and that's where my so, – so Dems in general are stuck there. And that's yes. where my critique of messaging comes in. It's not that, that way better messaging isn't urgently needed. Mm -hmm. messaging that's not this long, but it's this long, right? that uses concrete examples rather than big abstractions, that is free of jargon yes. and is focused on kind of neighborly kind of talk. We mm -hmm. desperately need that. But if we think messaging alone is going to change it without looking at what we've done to exacerbate and cultivate the divide, we're shot. Yeah. We're screwed. Because yeah. 
part of the messaging is owning up to our failure too. That's mm-hmm. fundamental to the messaging. Mm-hmm. It's it's owning up to the fact that these grievances, while they might be at times exaggerated or the rage might be a little exaggerated, the underlying causes are real mm-hmm. and have not been addressed. Mm-hmm. And because when, once you recognize that and you say, well, what are the underlying causes? Then you begin to realize Doggone it, as a party, we better start prioritizing things like this monopolization right. and, and, and antitrust. We better start prioritizing rural communities because not only do we need their votes, but by God, we need what they got. Right, right. We need the food and the fiber and the energy and the clean water and all the stuff that primarily comes from rural communities. Mm-hmm. You know, city folks and suburban folks sometimes forget that because everything's at the tip of our fingers. Yeah. But in fact, we desperately need healthy rural places, right? This is one of the messages. So messaging, absolutely essential, but it has to be messaging predicated on a real and deep understanding of how we got here. That that's right. kind of that's kind of Ruby's niche, right? Right, right. Is, right. is 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 building that understanding and then fostering the policy, the action, and the messages that flow from that understanding. Right. So I think I want to um, just sort of wrap up and end on this question of building that understanding, because um, another interesting project that Ruby is working on is kind of, um, I guess you describe it as like a community works project, right? Where it's very, very local and you're getting people from different rural communities to kind of come together and work on local initiatives. Um, Now, I know that sounds kind of vague, but I think that the the part that's very interesting to me is that... uh, the point of this project is that there are actually divides within rural communities, again, between the people who identify as Democrats or liberals or progressives, and then the people who don't. Um, so talk about talk a little bit about the kind of intra-rural divides that you see and how these projects are working to close those gaps. Yeah, that's great. So two, two things kind of um, inspired us to make this one of our three main uh, focus areas, along with the candidate piece and the rural-urban divide trainings. One was um, the the fact that again part of the current democratic recognition democratic party recognition of the problems in rural is to say what we need to do is we need more resources in rural communities we need more signs we need more volunteers we need more po- people phoning and texting that may be true but again without an understanding and without concrete engagement that ain't going to do anything and the second was actually the the first day of my 2018 campaign, I was in a tiny little town of 975 people, St. Paul, Virginia, a coal town. And I was introduced to the community by two people, the Republican mayor of the town and a Republican member of the Board of Supervisors. They both said in introducing me that they didn't agree with all my policies, but they supported me because we had worked together to get some great stuff done in St. Paul. So that made me think, well, maybe that's the key Mm -hmm. is that if if somebody looks at me and says, well, I don't like some of the stuff he stands for. But by God, he's been by our side for the last 20 or 30 years. They're going to have a really different sense of the person as a candidate and probably more openness to that person's ideas. So Mm -hmm. that kind of was the foundation the same way with the UMWA. Part of why they sort of tolerated my environmentalism was because I had been on the front lines of the Pittston coal strike with them and got arrested with them and fought with them. Right. So in that, with that as background, what we're working to cultivate and it's happening with local democratic committees and other liberal groups is that they not neglect or forget about their political activity, but that they start a whole new branch of activities as the local democratic committee or the local social justice organization, which are about engaging in a non-ideological way to solve community problems. And so some of the activities that have emerged that are either already happening or that people are planning for include very basic things like Um, working at medical clinics and helping to provide people with access to vaccines or whatever the local medical kinds of needs and issues are. Um, Youth activities. One 
local committee is working on developing um, a fairly significant set of scholarships for local high school students to either attend college, community college, or technical skill school. Um, another is around buy local campaigns. One group, they haven't done it yet, but they're looking at combining forces with the Chamber of Commerce and the Main Street Association to support local businesses instead of Amazon and big boxes. Others are around park cleanup um, or rehabbing homes or buildings in the community. All of those things are the first. First of all, they're all things that are hard to hate. Yeah. <laughs> but but secondly, they they engage people in a way that they stop seeing their neighbors as people who just don't get it. Yeah. But they start seeing their neighbors as coworkers in the effort to build a stronger community. We really, we don't know for sure that this will work. We think the the worst case scenario is that local Dems and liberals will be better informed about the community, better um, better able to talk to people because when you work with somebody, language becomes a smaller issue, um, and and good stuff will happen in communities. That's the right. worst. That's the worst case scenario. Right. Exactly. If if we can get all those things and bit by bit rebrand who we are in but by, by by this real concrete action so that people start to say well you know they are dems but they're they're pretty good folks right, <laughs> you know, right. maybe we'll whittle away at the divide enough to then make policy and candidates um from a progressive and more more competitive all right. Again, Anthony Flacaveno is the co-founder of the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative. We're going to go ahead and link the um, link the organization's website in the description box below. Um, obviously, you know, you guys will be producing all kinds of reports and other good stuff in the months to come. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Uh, Anthony, you've been very generous with your time. So thank you very much and hope to see you soon. Hope so, Jen. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, as always, good to see you. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next week. 